few months ago, we began a series in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'll be honest with you, I had no idea just how much God's Spirit was going to use what I was studying and what I was contemplating and in prayer and asking God to apply it to my life first. I had no clue how much God would use this theme of restoration in studying these books in my own life. So many Friday mornings, you probably had no idea, but what I've been bringing to you has been nothing less than just fresh-picked fruit, oftentimes from that very week, and how God's been to work in my life as I continue, just like you, following Jesus. One thing that we can see from this series from God's Word is that we are all broken people, every one of us. We all have struggles. We all have fears. We all have failures, disappointments, pain. Every one of us is broken. And throughout this series in Ezra and Nehemiah, God has been revealing that he is at work restoring people to lives of worship. Lives of worship where deep inside, down to their core and their souls, they are satisfied. And they're experiencing true, sustained joy, even in the face of circumstances that are not favorable. If you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus, then you already, right now, as we speak, are restored to a relationship with God. And yet, you are not yet fully restored because we're not in heaven yet. We're not glorified. And so we continue to need more of God's ongoing healing for our souls. We need more of God's ongoing transformation, sanctification, growing, and that happens through His holy presence, which we have in us. His Spirit, who is holy, is accomplishing this so that we begin to have more of our brokenness healed and more of our hang-ups being history and experiencing more of his presence is the key. And we're going to complete this journey today as we finish the book of Nehemiah, being Nehemiah chapter 13. By this point in God's story of salvation, so this, the story of how God is redeeming the world for his own glory to be displayed, his people, Israel, had returned from exile in, in Babylon over 100 years earlier, so as you Nehemiah covers a lot of history, the temple in Jerusalem and the city walls that were torn down have been rebuilt and restored. The city of Jerusalem has been repopulated. We saw that last week. Worship has been reinstituted. The festivals are being observed. Their lives are focused and centered upon God's word as led by Ezra, the priest. And so God has been so faithful to his people he always keeps his promises. And God had already restored so much in their lives, and yet, just like us today, they continue to need more of God's mercy. Let me give you the primary truth from Nehemiah 13 before we begin reading it, just so you know where we're going and what God is revealing primarily in this text. So the main idea is that God is merciful to reveal our sin and restore our lives back to him. 
Similarly, God is merciful to reveal our sin and to then restore our lives back to him. If you are living in a pattern of secret sin, or if you have a pattern of a sinful attitude, the best thing for you is to get caught. Hear me. If you are struggling today with a secret sin that you think no one knows, you're, you're covering your tracks, you're, you're doing the best job you can to keep it hidden and under wraps, and you think no one knows, well, that's not true because God knows, and it is affecting you, whether you know it or not, it is. Your soul is affected by that, and you might think to yourself, the best thing you can do is keep it hidden and just manage it, control it, and somehow find healing on your own, but you know deep inside that it's not working. And the best thing that can happen to you is to be exposed. The best thing is to be caught. It's mercy. It's mercy. When your friend comes up to you and says, brother, I don't think you're healthy. Say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. He says, no, you're not. And you say, no, I, no, you're, no, yeah, you're right. You're right, I'm not. I need help. That is mercy. And because God is so merciful, he reveals, exposes us so that we can then be restored to him. Because sin that's kept in the dark will continue to grow and grow until it has taken over and devastated every area of your life and broken every relationship and just leaves you in a dark pit all alone. And it is God's Spirit who heals us, who brings back light and brings us into the light. But he chooses to work when Jesus is proclaimed. This is how God works. Read John 14 through 16 where Jesus is revealing the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how he works. He testifies to Jesus. Where Jesus is proclaimed, the Spirit regenerates and sanctifies. Where he's not proclaimed, he doesn't work there. The Spirit only is active when Jesus is being lifted high. And so we sing, may you be lifted higher. Why? Because we want more of his Spirit to be active here to regenerate the lost and to sanctify believers so that we can display his glory and experience true joy. But he only does it when we're honest. If we're lying to ourselves or lying to others or somehow even lying to God, his spirit chooses not to work there. And so we look to Jesus. You see, a restored soul is one that is truly resting in Jesus. That's what this looks like. Let's begin reading in Nehemiah 13. Let's read the first paragraph, verses 1 through 3. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. 
And so what you're seeing here is how God's word indeed shapes God's people. They're reading the word. Likely they're reading from Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6. Because in that section of the book of Moses, Deuteronomy, it describes how Ammonites and Moabites were enemies of God, and thus were not allowed to, quote, enter the assembly of the Lord. And so the people had separated themselves from, it says, from those of foreign descent. So we looked at this a few months ago in Ezra chapter 6, verse 21, where it described people from other nations that had given up their idols, that had given up their religion and their old ways of paganism. They, they gave that up and had joined Israel in the worship of the one true God. And so they were there partaking of worship with God's people, even though they had different ethnic backgrounds. And so the people of God has always been a mixed group. It's not always been one ethnicity. It's about faith in the one true God. And there's examples of this, like, for example, Ruth. Ruth was from Moab. If you read the book of Ruth, it says over and over, Ruth Moabitess, making it clear that you know she's not a Jew. She's from Moab, and yet she had faith in the one true God. And so anyone was welcome to join as long as they truly were trusting in the one true God. But they needed to be separated from the influences of the Ammonites and Moabites because as a whole, they were very sinful, very idolatrous, and were causing the Israelites to stumble into sin. And so they were being separated from that. Let's keep reading verse 4 and following. Now before this... Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions to the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that, had, that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakor, son of Madaniah. They were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God for his service. What you're seeing here is Eliashib was the high priest, and he was overseeing the temple. Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but Nehemiah 4 verse 3 says that Tobiah was an Ammonite. Now, we just read that they had no 
relations with the Ammonites, that they were not supposed to be part of God's people. And yet, here you have Tobiah, an Ammonite, who had married into Eliashib's family. So he married into the high priest's family. He was very influential, probably very wealthy. He was outspoken, but he was an enemy of God. He was opposing Nehemiah, opposing the work of God. And so this man, this Eliashib, was a snake. And he snuck in to the leadership structures of God's people. And so now Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, originally 445 B.C. He served as governor for 12 years. So 433 B.C., he went back to Persia to serve the king. And then after, it says, after some time, we don't know how long, but likely about three years, he comes back and he sees what's going on. And he can't believe what he is seeing. How the high priest had emptied a storehouse that was meant to store what is needed to provide for those that are ministering in the temple. And he emptied it out and he moved in his family member, an Ammonite, Tobiah, who was an enemy of God, who was opposing Nehemiah, and he begins to live in the house of God. This is shocking. Like, this should never happen. And that's what was going on here. He moved in, the enemy living in the temple. The people had stopped tithing, so they, they were not concerned. And so what happens to those that are supposed to lead worship, to sing, and to teach? And they, they couldn't survive because there was no income. What did they do? They left to go make a living. And so now the temple is left with no worship, no leadership, no one is giving of their resources. The enemy who is controlling, influencing, is living in the house of God. This is a terrible situation. And Nehemiah comes in and he is angry, but this is a righteous indignation. And he cleans house, literally. He throws out Tobiah's stuff, drives him away. He leaves everyone to see the need to give, and now they start tithing again. And now let's keep reading verses 15 where we just left off. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loaves, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day 
holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. See, the Sabbath was celebrated every week to show something, that man exists to worship God. We don't exist just to survive. I know that there's philosophy out there, especially the atheistic, naturalistic worldview that says that we're just highly evolved apes and there is no purpose and it's just about survival of the species. That is a lie. We don't exist just to survive. We exist to worship. This is why God made us. And the Sabbath was a gift, a gift where they could work six days instead of seven, and then they could rest, knowing that their God would provide for them with only six days of work and not all seven. seven. And so the Sabbath was very important. It would set them apart from all other nations because in the ancient world, there was no weekend. There were no days off. You worked seven days a week, every week, all year. So God is saying, no, stop, rest, worship me, enjoy me. You exist to worship, not just to survive. But sadly, the people stopped. They stopped observing the Sabbath. So God told through Nehemiah and the spiritual leaders to be purified. And to once again celebrate the Sabbath. Let's keep reading on what else Nehemiah had to encounter. Verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. And half of the children spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, send an account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, even him, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And so many God's people here were disobeying and they were marrying women that were not believers. Now, again, there has never been a, a racial distinction between the people of God. It's always been about faith, so anyone is welcome. But the problem here is that these wives did not follow the one true God. So the issue is not nationality per se. It was immorality and the lack of trusting in God. And so this was a problem, if you remember, at the end of Ezra. So 30 years earlier with Ezra, this was a major issue. And now, not that long after, it's happened again. They've gone back to their old sinful patterns, and Nehemiah confronts them very forcefully. And he has this, this public ceremony where he shames those, and he beats them and pulls their hair out. 
Like he was not messing around at all. He was trying to do in this public ceremony, where he was trying to convey what you are doing is evil. This is bad for your soul. This is not who we're called to be. And it had implications because this whole new generation could not read Hebrew. Which meant they couldn't read God's word. And so this was a precarious position. If you can't read God's word, then you can't know him. And so this had to be remedied. And so he, what he's doing here is he is reforming the lives of God's people before their God. And verse 29, we just read, mentions the name of someone that we've read before, if you remember throughout Nehemiah, an enemy who's always opposing God's people, Sanballat, the Horonite. This evil man was truly an enemy of God's people, but he had great influence. Samuel also had married into the high priest family. He was wreaking havoc. And I love what Nehemiah says. He says, therefore, I chased him from me. He's chasing him out. He's like, get out of here. And so Tobiah and now even here, Sanballat, evil man that had, had influence, and he just runs them out. So Nehemiah here had cleansed the temple. He had reestablished the Sabbath. He's even cleansing the people and purifying them. And he's restoring healthy leadership among God's people. But after each of these reforms, after every one of these, verses 14, 22, 29, what does he do? He prays. That is what Nehemiah is. He's a man of prayer. If you read it again, I know we've been going through this for the last few months. Read it at one sitting. Just sit on for an hour, read it cover to cover, and it will strike you how often you see Nehemiah praying and praying. He begins the book, chapter 1. He's praying to God that God will move and restore the walls of Jerusalem. And he prays at every step in his opposition and after victory. And here he's praying. Book ends. The book begins with prayer and it ends with prayer. Let's finish the book of Nehemiah. Last two verses. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the and, and I provided wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for good. So Nehemiah is best known for what? Rebuilding the walls, right? Nehemiah is usually preached in most churches when you have a capital campaign, when you want to build a building. And so then you preach to Nehemiah to inspire everyone to give money to build a building because he, he's a builder. Or Nehemiah is known for being a strong leader. And so there are countless leadership books out there based upon Nehemiah's principles. But when you look at Nehemiah, when he's looking back and all that he's done, he's, he's not boasting on, I built a wall or I'm a strong leader. That is not what he is about. He is a man of prayer who knows and enjoys God and is led by him. And look at how he summarizes what he did. He says, I cleansed. He says, I established and I provided. That is his legacy. He's more concerned with rebuilding the lives of God's people than he was about building a wall. He wanted to see people's lives restored to their God. And he's praying, and all he wants is God's favor, God's approval, not the approval of man. He did some things in this chapter that were probably not popular. 
I'm sure that there was plenty of complaining about Nehemiah, the dictator. He wasn't concerned with that. He wasn't trying to impress anyone. His focus was on God, on God's glory, and doing what's right according to God's word. And he just says, God, I just want your favor, your approval. He's just desperate for God. This, to me, Nehemiah is so inspiring because of how he was a man of prayer. This, this powerful story here, as we conclude in Nehemiah 13, reveals the path, the path towards restoration. And if you want to have a restored soul, if you want to experience healing and transformation where you're honestly resting in Jesus, this story here, chapter 13 of Nehemiah, shows you the path that you must follow. Now remember, what we're looking at here, the main idea of this power, this chapter rather, is that God is merciful to reveal our sin and restore our lives back to Him. That's what we're seeing here. God's revealing their sin, exposing their sin, to restore them back to lives of worship where they know Him. So first, let's look at the story. Now that we've seen it, let's pick out the, the main points we can get our minds around and apply this in everyday life. First, let's see the path that leads away from restoration. So if we follow their example, we'll get very far from Jesus. So number one, the path away from restoration is spiritual apathy. That's where it begins. If you want to be not restored, be apathetic. If you want to stay lost in your sin and enslaved to your idols, then be apathetic. And so the, the path toward not restoration is apathy. You see, in Nehemiah's day, they were unconcerned. There was this laziness. So there's the spirit of indifference and of laxity that had kind of set in. They, they were more concerned with their own personal comforts than delighting in the glory of God. I mean, just think about it, just for a moment here. They stopped giving to God from their financial blessings. They didn't think it was that important. They didn't care that the ministers in the temple had to quit serving God to go make a living out in the fields. They didn't care about going to worship the temple. There was no leading. They, they didn't care. They didn't care that there was the enemy of God who had taken up residence in the house of God and using his influence for evil. They didn't care. They didn't care about resting on the seventh day and worshiping their God on the Sabbath. They were just too comfortable, too busy, too much going on to be bothered. Schedule is just too jam-packed, too concerned with the affairs of this world to even realize what's happening to their own souls. And it began with this apathy. Too busy to observe or to obey and to serve and if we get really honest, we're not too different. They were too comfortable with the presence of sin in their lives. They were just comfortable. It didn't bother them very much. Are you suffering from spiritual apathy? I didn't say you hate Jesus. I didn't say you're opposing him. I didn't say you're not attending worship gatherings or even going to home group. But deep inside, is there a spirit of unconcern, of, of laziness, or of apathy towards knowing 
truly enjoying Jesus? Does your soul desire to read God's Word? Is there a hunger for God's Word in your life? Do you hunger to read it slowly? Just read it slow and focus your thinking, meditate on it, and just spend time talking to Jesus. Are you hungry to walk in purity and in victory? Are you a generous person? Are you more concerned with checking the latest tweet or Facebook post than you are with reading the Word and enjoying the presence of Christ? I would encourage you to not have your phone anywhere around you when you are going to read, meditate, and pray. Have it in a different room with the ringer off so you, you don't hear every little beep or alert that something new has been posted on social media that you just have to see what's going on. It's not that important. Get to it later, if at all. Are we apathetic towards the things of God? You see, what can happen to us, and I've been guilty in the past, and so I'm, I'm confessing this, is some of us can be so academic and so intellectual that we think that learning about Jesus, knowing facts about Jesus is the same as enjoying him, and it's not. It's not the same. I'm not talking about an academic, intellectual approach to learning the facts of who Jesus is. If that's, if that's the sum total of your spirituality, you're going to drift very far away from him. Now, things may seem okay for a while. Maybe you can survive even for years with a purely academic approach to Jesus. But it's a matter of time where your spiritual laziness and apathy will lead you down a path of devastation. A lack of concern for spiritual health will lead, number two, again, the path that leads away from restoration, secondly, is sinful patterns. It begins with apathy. It begins innocently enough, being apathetic towards God, but then it leads into sinful patterns. And so without continual daily presence of Jesus in your life through the filling of his spirit, where you spend time with him and, and your soul is just enjoying him. If you don't have that, you will slowly but surely become unhealthy. And sinful patterns will, not may, will begin to be evident. It's a natural result of this drift. And that's what happened with the Israelites here. They began with some apathy towards giving, apathy towards who was in leadership, they just were too unconcerned. But then you look and what happened? Now they're marrying women that didn't love God, that are immoral, and, and now the temple is, is not being tended to. They've stopped worshiping. Their lives are now out of control. They have these sinful patterns. And it started with just apathy. This chapter gives us a great picture of what sin does in our lives. You see, one of the rooms in the temple complex that was to store supplies for the worship of God was cleared out to make room for an idolatrous enemy of God. And so we can do the same thing. We can let sin creep in, and then we make room for sin in our heart, in our lives, and then it just takes up residence. It just, the sin just lives there. 
because rearrange everything and dictate everything. Like a computer virus running in the background that you don't know is there, but it is controlling all your applications. And it's crashing your computer, and you don't know why, and you're rebooting it, you don't know what's going on. But there, it's infected. So you have to remove it so that all the apps will work properly, so that your relationships, your mind, your life will be pure and not corrupted by that sin that has taken residence in your life. See, God no longer dwells in a building like he did in that era in redemptive history. God's spirit dwells in his people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Have we become so comfortable with sin that we've let it move in? And we would like to kind of push the spirit out because then we feel guilty and we don't want that, even though that is godly sorrow that should lead to repentance. Sin can be so subtle. It really can. We can be so blind to our own sinful patterns. Ask Jesus to show you. Be specific in your life. Don't just pray generally. Pray every day, crying out to him specifically, begging him to show you, are there any sinful patterns? And, and if you can't find any, ask your wife or your husband. He can or she can probably help you to identify what's blind. And I'm not even, it sounds funny, but it's true. Ask your kids. They know. Ask your home group members. They know. They see you. And oftentimes, we don't even see it ourselves, but those around us see our attitudes and can see what's going on. It's a window into what's going on inside of us. We have to be honest. What are our sinful patterns? Be specific. Is it anger? Is it anxiety? Is it an addiction? A critical spirit? A controlling spirit? A divisive spirit? Envy? Greed? Gossip? Laziness? Sexual lust? Slowness to forgive? Feelings of being worthless, gluttony, insecurity. What are your sinful patterns? This is not an exhaustive list by any means. I'm just giving you some ideas to ponder and really ask Jesus to show you what your patterns are. There's always a deeper heart issue. These, what I just mentioned, our surface is always something deeper. And so, for example, with pick insecurity, if someone in this room is struggling with a deep sense of not being secure, you can respond one of different ways. Some people respond to insecurity with being very controlling because they're insecure and, and they want to be, feel better about themselves, and so they want to control everything and everyone around them. So this controlling spirit, really the root is insecurity. But other people respond with just depression. And so their insecurity leads them to just feel really down and just depressed. Others have this facade of arrogance because really they're very afraid and uncertain of themselves. And so they want the persona, the, out, the external to seem very confident. But on the inside, they're not. Some respond with sexual sin because they feel as though if they can just feel loved and give themselves to people every weekend, then 
then it'll help with the insecurity, but it just makes it worse. So there's different ways that we respond to that root problem, but we have to get to the root. Because if you don't, then your, your sinful patterns will just continue. What's at the root? If you know, be honest with yourself. If you honestly don't know, pray. Cry out to Jesus and ask him to show you. Ask those closest to you to help you see. We have to be honest with ourselves, honest with God, and honest with those closest to us. Apathy will lead you down the path of seeking comfort, enjoying things of this world that cannot deliver. We're made to rest in Jesus. If we don't, it'll lead to these kinds of sinful patterns that are very destructive. And lead to number three, ultimately, this path away from restoration is a hardened heart. It begins with apathy, it leads to simple patterns, and it results in having a heart that's very hard and calloused against God. Tobiah and Sambalat had to be driven away by Nehemiah. They wouldn't change, they wouldn't repent. And so how do you respond when people come to you and are honest with you that you have a problem? Do you deny it? Do you hide it? Minimize it or get angry. Galatians 6, we read it earlier in the worship gathering. We're called to restore our brothers in a spirit of gentleness and humility. And restore one another. What about when you get hurt? Whenever someone else hurts you, do you stay angry with that person for hurting you? Do you refuse to forgive? Do you show mercy? Have you forgotten that you've received mercy from God? And now you are called to extend that mercy to others. A hardened heart is a dangerous place to be for a follower of Jesus. It'll take you very far away from him. So let's in the last few moments think, if God is merciful to reveal our sin and then restore our lives back to him, well, what is the path? That was, that was the path we just saw that leads us away, but what's the path that leads us to restoration. It's quite simple. Repentance and trust in Jesus. We repent and we honestly trust in Jesus and that is a path to being restored. Everything in this series, everything that we've seen in Nehemiah and as before that points to Jesus. The chapter is no different. Jesus is the final better Nehemiah who restored worship to his people, who has purified his people who are rebellious. Jesus ultimately has cleansed, established, and provided for us. So he's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the final better Nehemiah who has cleansed the temple from corruption. When Jesus overturned the money changers with his righteous anger, Nehemiah is pointing to Jesus who has turned over our lives and turned our lives upside down and restored us to fellowship and worship to him with his work that was finished on the cross. This is about Jesus. Nehemiah 13 is pointing to him in his gospel. When confronted by truth, the people in Nehemiah's day repented and trusted in God, all of which was a foreshadowing to what we must do today to experience restoration through Jesus. The only way that we're going to have lives that are restored, souls that are restored, is to honestly I mean, authentically repent 
and rest in Jesus. But true repentance is not the same thing as trying to manage it. And so, for example, environmental change, changing your environment. Oh, I just need a new leaf in life. I need to just get a new job or go to a new city or I need to get a new house or I just need some new friends or I need a new church. I need to change my environment and then I'm going to be good. No, you won't. Wherever you go, there you are. Change your environment won't change you. Some, some go for a more subtle kind of change, a legalistic change where you simply are working harder to follow all the rules. And in your own power, you're trying to be a, quote, good Christian. But the problem is this legalistic, in your own power, trying to follow the rules, all it does is it pushes your sinful patterns far deeper down, hidden from everyone else, because you don't want them to know that you're struggling. And so you put on a good face and, and you suppress it further, but the day will come where it's going to blow up in your face because God will not be mocked. We read earlier in Galatians 6, you will reap what you sow. And so it's not an environmental or legalistic change, but it's also not an intellectual change. Some people have a major gap with what they know, so knowing they have to change, and actually changing. Like you know what you need to change, but you're not actually doing it. It's not enough to just know information won't change you. Reading more books alone won't change you. Reading all the theology books you can get your hands on won't change you. Reading about the gospel alone won't do it. Intellectual is not enough. Change. True change is heart change. Only repenting of your sin and really trusting Resting in Jesus and let his transformation, his freedom from our idols, give us a restored soul. True change is submitting to the Holy Spirit, not resisting him, not rejecting him, not grieving him, but submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit and trusting him to heal you. Repentance means to change your mind. So repentance is agreeing with God and what he says about you. You change your direction, go the other way. And so repentance, true repentance, leads to change in how we live. Let me give you one small thing as we wrap up on what you can do to know if this is real repentance or if it's just pretending, okay? If it's hard, then that's probably true repentance. If you are able to change and it's pretty easy. And you can just kind of manage it, kind of control it very quickly, able to just kind of change your behavior, you know, at least on the surface. If it's an easy change, you can just control it. It's not real. It's pretending. It's fake. Because real change is hard. It's painful. True heart, deep to get to the root of our sin requires you to get it on your face before Jesus and cry out to him and just beg him, saying, Jesus, change me. Change my desires. Fill me with your spirit. Break this stronghold. I'm so desperate for you. I can't do this. That 
is when you're beginning to not take shortcuts and not just fake it, but it's real and it requires accountability. You need to hear truth day in and day out. It means you don't medicate emotionally with an idol. Medicating, that's not change. That's masking. And we can go to so many different ways to medicate our pain. But what you need to do is not medicate. And don't shoot up with emotional morphine. Just stay in the pain and be in it and give it to Jesus and cry out to him and say, Jesus, I'm not going to medicate. I'm not going to turn to anything. You heal my soul. And then you'll begin to see true freedom. Real. Healing and transformation is hard. He'll heal you, but he won't do it right away. He does it slowly. Why? Because he gets more glory that way. When we're honest with ourselves and with God, and we cry out, I'm desperate for you, he changes us very slowly because every day you need to be desperate for him, and you'll pray more, you'll cry out to him more. So he's not going to just zap you and heal you. He's going to do it slow on purpose because it displays his glory that much more. How do you get up in the morning in the face of your failures? You know that his mercies are new every morning. How do you get up and face your sin, your pain, your struggles? You get up every morning because his mercies are new. There is love and there is mercy from God. Jesus loves you. And you know that because he died on the cross to take away your sins. And he offers you forgiveness and freedom if you will truly trust and rest in him. Entrust your life to him. Jesus paid it all. We belong to him. The yoke of slavery has been broken. It's shattered. Don't you dare pick it up again. Put it back on. Don't you do that. You walk in who you are, a child of God who is forgiven and anointed and redeemed and adopted and sealed by the Holy Spirit and dwelt by him, being sanctified and has a hope of future glorification. This is who you are. We need to walk in this truth and trusting ourselves to Jesus and feeling the freedom that he gives us and feeling his love and mercy rush in. And if this is wild to you, because you've never heard this before and you don't know Jesus, today you can repent and trust in him and receive his spirit and begin to truly be restored. Come talk to me. I would love to lead you to Jesus. If you're here and you do know Jesus, draw near to him. Enjoy him. Let him fill you. May we have lives that are restored for his glory. Please pray with me. Father, you are so good. We are so needy. We are lost without you. We have no hope without you. We thank you for the forgiveness that you've given to us that we cannot ever hope to earn. Thank you for the restoring work that your spirit does in our lives. Help us to truly trust, rest in Jesus. Help us to have restored souls so that we can then be ambassadors that speak of your grace and mercy so you can see more people come in to the joy that only you offer. We pray in the name of our first love, Jesus.
Venga.